Hey folks, I thought that I would have a new show for you on Monday, and in fact I did, all of it written down. But it's Wednesday now, and what with being at home, I haven't had a clean hour or two to put it all together. So I'm using my last get-out-of-jail-free card and giving you November's news show, on the tax bill that just passed and on questionable economic theories. It's probably the best topical episode I've done yet, so I'm happy to give it a wide release. Next week's show will also be a couple of days late since I've got a wedding that runs through Monday, but after that, I'm back in Mexico, back at my desk, and back on track. Thank you for the patience that you've had in the meantime. All right, I'm John Coombs. We're talking about dirty, low-down, no-good, supply-side supporting, lying through their teeth, doomed in the history books, American conservatives, and the trickle-down economics they pretend to believe in. This is News for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. So what I want to talk to you folks about in the November news show, coming out in the regular tradition in the month afterwards, and to a certain extent late even in terms of its content, is the Republican tax plan. Sort of. I'll give you as brief a description of analysts' best guesses as to how its provisions will shake out for folks in our different classes as I can. But then I want to explore the fundamentally bankrupt idea that the GOP is using to pretend that the bill, when it becomes a law, won't simply be a gift to the wealthy and a big old screw to the common man. Trickle down. As for the bill itself, all these figures have to be estimates, since there's no final copy available even as the Senate, as I write and now as I record this, is working towards a vote. Of all the tax cuts, 61.8% of the money would head straight to the top 1% of our population. The destruction of Obamacare's individual mandate would leave 13 million people uninsured. And it gets worse on that front. This bill will balloon the deficit by a trillion and a half dollars over 10 years, and people like Marco Rubio are already openly talking about how that future deficit will mean that we'll have to cut programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the ACA. That is, the Republicans' plan is to blow a hole in the government's finances in order to give money to the wealthy, and then to patch that hole, they're going to take programs from the poor and the middle class. More than that, too, While the ultra-wealthy will get tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in tax breaks, 
An analysis of the middle class looks like most people experience a small tax increase because of changes to exemptions and deductions. Even more, the bill specifically targets the poor who will pay significantly more in taxes and eliminates deductions for college students, postgraduates, and even for teachers who are currently but will soon be unable to write off buying pens and pencils for their classes. All of this information, by the way, is coming from Vox, which is about as middle of the road as you can get, and from the Tax Foundation, which is a conservative institution. At this point, too, I want to mention that this bill, that's probably going to pass, that includes non-tax sweeteners, like drilling in the Anwar Preserve in Alaska and weakening the individual mandate in order to murder Obamacare, this total disaster that Republicans are wreaking on us because of their slavish obedience to their donors, it's going to pass because those so-called anti-Trump heroes like John McCain and Bob Corker are perfectly happy to go along with it. These men, who have scored so many political points by being quote-unquote willing to break with their party, and for respecting regular order in the Senate, are going to rubber stamp a multi-trillion dollar tax bill with one day of debate and no official score from the CBO or anybody else. I couldn't stand it in the summer when McCain got so much credit for deciding not to rob healthcare from millions of Americans, as if that were heroism and not the bare minimum of human decency. And I want everyone to know that I think, and that I think you should think, about John McCain and his fellow travelers the way that historians in the future will, as craven, convictionless men who sold their country out for no more perceivable and no more noble reason than to make the rich a little richer. Why am I so confident when I condemn this tax policy and the men who support it, especially when those men supposedly truly believe that tax relief for the wealthy will spur economic growth across the board? Because that idea, known on and off as trickle-down economics, has been bunked since before the term was coined more than eight decades ago, and the evidence against it has mounted with every passing year. Wikipedia seems to think that the concept might have originated with William Jennings Bryan, if you went to an American school, you'd have read about him in history class, and after Andrew Jackson, he'd be the second figure you would have been told to call a populist. But unlike quote-unquote populist Donald Trump, as far as we know, Brian actually fought on the side of the common man. In his Cross of Gold speech, which you might have been told to read, and which focuses a little too narrowly on the gold standard to be wholly applicable today, he has this line, which more or less captures the concept. Quote, There are two ideas of government. There are those who believe that if you just legislate to make the well-to-do prosperous, that their prosperity will leak through on those below. The democratic idea has been that if you legislate to make the masses prosperous, their prosperity will find its way up and through every class that rests upon it." Unquote. Now, Google's Ngram search tells us that the term trickle-down itself got popular in the early to mid-1900s. And everybody thinks it probably came from Will Rogers, but the basic idea is simple and I'm sure you all already know it. If there is an upper class prospering in a country, their wealth will eventually make its way down to the common people. We'll get slightly more into the mechanisms that are supposed to make that happen, but first, the corollaries to trickle-down, the modern versions, we get those from Ronald Reagan and his successors in the GOP. For Reagan, it was supply-side economics, the idea that if you removed costs for corporations, i.e. regulations and taxes, then goods would become cheaper, and employment, by some in-theory unexplained mechanism, would rise. The modern GOP has followed up with phrases like job creator, but the basic idea was the same under Reagan, and indeed under Benjamin Harrison in 1890. Make the wealthy wealthier, and everybody else makes out too. 
Now, I apologize if this gets a little too simplistic, but something that I've always felt gets lost in basic economics classes is that what you want in an economy is movement. I make something, you pay me for it, then I can use that money to buy something that you or somebody else has made. Unmoving, accumulated cash has only a couple of purposes beyond which it's useless. If you and I are the only two people in an economy, and I make and sell things to you, but I don't buy, and I stack up the cash you give me, our economy isn't moving. One purpose for accumulated cash on a personal or corporate or even government level is to be a cushion. If you're too sick or old or young to make stuff, that is work, you can use that cash to buy or retire or to soldier through some rainy day expense. And the other purpose it can serve is as capital. You can save up the proceeds from making stuff to buy something that allows you to make more stuff. If I bake bread, for example, but my oven's only big enough for one loaf at a time, then I can save and buy a bigger oven to make more bread more quickly. That's also, maybe interestingly, or maybe not, the basic principle of and where we get the term capitalism from. Capital. Accumulated wealth is privately owned with the expectation within the capitalist system that said wealth will not be used as European aristocrats might have, in order to live indefinitely on its strength but instead to be put to work in order to generate more capital. That's also the principle on which our banking system is supposed to work. Even if you and I don't have a whole lot of stored up capital to spend on a big oven, we can put that money, as we're saving it, into a bank. The bank then pools all of the money that all of the people are saving, pays them a bit for it, and loans that money out to other people for bigger, more productive projects. Our banking system doesn't really work that way anymore. In the first place, it plays the stock market, which is something that we'll get to, and it makes money off of rents. That is, it charges you fees for the money that you're lending it, rather than the other way around. In any case, unmoving money has those two most basic purposes in an economy, savings and capital. At some level, accumulated wealth passes the point at which it has any real utility as savings. For example, here in Mexico, living really pretty well, a million dollars would more or less set me up to retire right now, at 26. Anything over a million dollars would be either wasted or would imply that I'd be using it to retire at some standard of living high above the comfortable one that I have. Money that's past its point of utility as savings might then serve as capital, but in this simple economic model that we're building together right now, it only counts towards economic activity if it's actually going towards some productive purpose. In other words, if I've saved more than a million dollars with the purpose of buying the biggest bread oven in all of Mexico, all right, because that will eventually produce. But if it's just sitting there, no good, because economic activity is the churn, the movement of money. So with all that in place, trickle-down economics. How is it that making the wealthy wealthier will reach you and me, here at or towards the bottom of the economic pyramid? Well, one way would be economic activity buying and selling. If the rich can buy more stuff, then that's more activity and maybe it reaches all the way down to us. Maybe with the extra money from this tax bill, a rich dude buys another website and you develop those. Or maybe they buy more bread and I make that. But the problem with this part of the idea is that if you take the proportions that we have in the United States today, where the top 0.1% of our population has as much wealth as the bottom 90%, there are only so many rich people, and they are only ever going to need so many websites or loaves of bread. That is that out of every 1,000 people in the United States, one person 
has as much wealth as the bottom 900 people, and that one person can only buy so many things from that bottom 900. If I take a guy who has $100 million, and with this tax cut I give him $110 million, how much more stuff could he conceivably buy with the extra $10 million? What's more, how much of the stuff that he buys with that extra $10 million will come from you and me here at the bottom of the pyramid versus folks already much closer to the top? I bake bread. I don't make $20 million yachts, $500,000 cars, or $10,000 watches. None of this has to be theoretical either. If you look at places with extreme wealth disparities, like the U.S. at the turn of the last century, at Chile after Pinochet enacted supply-side market reforms with the help of Chicago school economists, or at kleptocracies like Indonesia under Suharto or the Philippines under Ferdinand Marcos, you'll see that, that people at the top are living exceptionally well, has not, does not, and will not do anything for people down below. The more complicated case to look at in this way is that other use for accumulated wealth, capital. It's more complicated because there's no easy way for us to decide on a limit, either for people or corporations, beyond which capital becomes a sort of feudal or aristocratic wealth, with no more purpose behind it than to stack up into higher and higher piles. It's even more complicated by the fact that private individuals nowadays, especially when they've got piles of money, tend to put it into the stock market, something that we often call investment. The thing there, though, is that the term itself doesn't quite apply to what's going on in the stock market. Something else you might have learned back in history class, especially in the US or the UK, was that way back in the day, there were these things called joint stock companies, like the Virginia Company or the East India Company. The idea of these things, the big innovation, was that somebody who we'd now call a founder would come up with an idea. Let's say, colonizing Virginia or sending a spice trading expedition to the Far East an idea for which he did not have enough money, but an idea that a group of wealthy merchants or aristocrats could pool their cash together to make happen. If the thing failed, no one person would get hurt too badly, and if it went off, everyone would see their initial investment multiplied when the colony prospered or the ship came back and the terms of the agreement came to a close. But what's important here is that there was this fixed endpoint at which those investments paid off, this is the kind of way it still works in some places, like Silicon Valley, where investors will put money into a new program or app or device, and if it comes off, everybody wins. The stock market is, today, a little bit different. Maybe one day we'll have a whole episode about this, but for now it's one thing that I want to talk about. That when the accumulated wealth of individuals in the U.S. goes into quote-unquote investments in the stock market, the vast, vast majority of it does not go to the company whose stock they're purchasing. It goes to the other individuals or entities holding and selling the stock. So even though theoretically you're investing, that is providing your accumulated capital to a company so that it can buy bigger factories or bread ovens, what you're in fact doing is trading accumulated wealth around among people with a bunch of accumulated wealth. There is no, in our simple terms, economic activity actually going on. Money is changing hands, sure, but without relation to anyone actually making anything. And those people that facilitate the movement of that money are themselves residents at the very top of the pyramid, stockbrokers and hedge fund managers and banks that have long since left their original capitalist wheelhouse. So what does all that mean? Well, the richest folks in the country, the ones with gobs of accumulated wealth that's not buying enough stuff for it to make it down to you and me, 
They are also, by and large, not using their wealth as capital to make bigger factories or offices that might employ you or me. They are living, in point of fact, like European aristocrats would have centuries ago. They're living off the rents of their wealth, but without doing anything productive with it that would result in so-called trickle-down. Companies are even harder to analyze on this level, because especially big firms, like my parents own General Motors, can turn even huge quantities of accumulated wealth into capital in an instant. If you gave GM $100 billion out of thin air tomorrow, they could hold onto it for 100 years, or they could spend it in a week equally easily. But one way that we can try to figure out what's real capital and what's useless wealth is by looking at what companies are doing now, what kind of profits they're making, and what they've done with extra wealth from tax breaks during similar periods in the past. We'll find a few things. The employment growth we've seen since the Great Recession has been concentrated in bad jobs, like McDonald's fry cookery, and not in good jobs, ones with benefits and living wages. That might lead the average person who's looked for gainful since 2008 to believe that if we've recovered, it hasn't been by much. But in contrast to the quality of that recovery at the bottom, companies in the US today are actually making healthy and sometimes record profits. So if US companies have more money than ever before, but job quality and pay is maybe worse than it has been since the Second World War, would giving those companies even greater profits make it down to us at the bottom? Uh, no, it won't. And I can say that confidently because the companies themselves are saying. Outlets through the New York Times on the moderate left, through Reuters in the middle, and onto the Wall Street Journal on the moderate right have reported U.S. CEOs saying that if the tax bill passes, they'll be using newly freed profits and repatriated money to buy back their own stock, explicitly saying that they will not put it towards hiring more workers. And we as a people would have to be morons or deluded to think that they would do anything else. There's a graph I'm going to put up in the notes to this show, and it'll let you in on a very important little fact. American workers have been getting more productive. Because of capital investments in both us as people, meaning education and training, and more nebulous stuff like food stamps and school lunches that help those of us at the bottom of the pyramid step up, and in technology, like the steam engine, the production line, robots, the internet, and whatever else, we're more productive now than we ever have been. We are, in other words, making more bread. We have, in other words, been making more bread faster nearly every year since the founding of the country. And at least since the 1940s, the amount that we've been paid for that bread tracked pretty closely with how much we produced. But starting in the 1970s, and specifically 1973, and accelerating through Reagan until today, the lines on the graph, production and pay, have split apart and diverged radically. Imagine you were employed in a bread factory in 1970, and you were making 10 loaves a day. Imagine that today you're working in the same factory, and with the help of technology and better public education to help you use it, you're making, and this is a statistic here, not something off the top of my head, 24 and a fifth loaves per day. You, like the average American worker, are 241.8% more productive than you were in 1970. But, and here's the clinch, you, like the average American worker, are being paid exactly as much as you were in 1970. Inflation obscures this from us, but even though you were making $10,000 a year in 1970, and you're making $62,795.05 right now, those $2 values buy exactly the same amount of stuff. That leaves us with a big old gap, doesn't it? Between what you're making and what you're being paid. Imagine that in 1970, of the 10 loaves you baked per day, you got the money from the sale of eight of them. 
Those eight loaves sold every day for 365 days. That's the 10 grand that you get at the end of the year. The money from the sale of the other two loaves and the other two loaves of everybody else at the factory, that's what pays for the factory you're in, the cost of the ingredients, and importantly, the people above you who aren't baking bread, the managers and vice presidents and the CEO of your bread company. Nowadays, you're making almost two and a half times more loaves, but you're only getting the cash from the sale of the same eight as you were 46 years ago. Where is the cash from those other 16 and one-fifth loaves going? If anything, making bread is cheaper now, since each baker makes so much more bread in a day, and you should be making much more. Well, that money's going upwards, into executive pay and corporate profits. CEO pay, in the same period that your hourly rate hasn't budged, has gone up nine and a half times in real dollars. If you look at it, a CEO in 1970 made 20 times more than somebody on the line, you, baking bread. And maybe that made sense. Maybe it was a really big bread company, and you needed a really brainy dude to handle it all. Today, though, that same CEO running the same bread company, he makes on average 296 times more than you, than somebody on the line. So if we allow companies to increase their already record profits today, where is that extra money going to go? We could hope, as the Republicans profess to hope, that it would go to the worker. But if we look at not just the history of the last 40 years, but of the last 100, or 200, or 500, we'll find that time and again, the money goes up, not down. The long and the short of this is that an economy depends on the movement of money. But not just movement. Movement that goes towards making things, and buying them, and then making more. Money stashed in cars and yachts and mansions. Money shuffled from one wealthy person to another in the stock market. Money sequestered in offshore banks, and money siphoned away from labor and channeled upwards into management doesn't do us here in the middle and at the bottom of the pyramid one whit of good. The most criminal thing about this whole enterprise is that for all that principled conservatives like Paul Ryan or John McCain or Bob Corker claim to believe that trickle-down works, they know that it does not. The evidence against it is too compelling. The experiments that we've tried in the 1890s in the 1920s, the 1980s, and the 2000s were too disastrous and too convincing in their failures, and the evidence in its favor is so non-existent that the only way you could be willing to inflict another round of it on the American people would be either through willful stupidity or absolute intentional avaricious evil. America was once an unacknowledged aristocracy, where families like the Rockefellers and the DuPonts and every other robber baron dynasty accumulated wealth and then sat on it enjoying its rents while leaving nothing to trickle down. What's becoming increasingly obvious is that we as a country are returning to an aristocratic model where the wealthy use the government to protect their wealth. And rather than putting it to productive use, they hoard it, while those of us below them on the pile struggle and scrimp. Republicans have forgotten, or would like us to forget, that there was, in the struggle between capitalism and socialism and every other ideology in the U.S. between the 1880s and the 1920s or so, there was an implicit promise in capitalism that helped it to win out. Part of that promise was that we, the non-capital-owning class, we would work. The capitalist class, in turn, would be allowed to hold on to its great wealth without us, the working class, seizing it from them. The centerpiece of this deal was that the capitalist class would assent to the government regulating both the market and their wealth, so that even though we would never be as wealthy as they, 
the government would have the cash to fund schools and social security and healthcare. That's the bargain that we made, and it's why the New Deal is literally called the New Deal. And it's a bargain that we improved upon with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. The deal before the New Deal was the deal of robber baronism and laissez-faire economics and feudalism, in which a few gathered up all the wealth and left nothing for the rest. The greatest admission in this tax bill that Republicans not only know that that's what's happening, but that they want to encourage it, is their elimination of the estate tax. The estate tax is our country's most explicit legal measure against aristocracy. If somebody dies with upwards of $5.49 million, so $11 million for married couples, more than the framers of the tax imagined could possibly be put to productive private use, then everything above that amount goes to the state, to be put towards public goods for the whole of the people. Highways, schools, firemen, police, health workers, and all the rest of the public apparatus. And importantly, it aimed to prevent the establishment of aristocratic dynasties piling up their unproductive wealth ever higher with every passing generation. The estate tax, what's more, affects just 0.2% of our population, two out of every thousand people that pass away. I don't know about you, but I still think that $5.49 million is more than enough money for anybody to righteously spend in a lifetime. The Republicans don't. And what they're saying to you and to me and everybody else down Pyramid is that they're the party of the top and for the top. They're the party for all that they pretend to bow down before the Constitution and the Declaration, for aristocracy and for the domination of the many by the privileged few, by any means at their disposal. The tax bill comes across in the news as just one more new disaster of the Trump administration, as just one more new intransigence from Republicans in their houses of Congress. But it is in fact the latest and greatest step down a road that Republicans have long been paving from popular democracy towards an aristocratic oligarchy. For all that the GOP has bemoaned Trump's behavior, he is exactly the robber baron for whom they've been legislating these past 40 years. He steals from his workers, enriches himself, uses that wealth to achieve political power, and once in office, he fills the halls of government with cronies and members of his own family. The Trump presidency. Wealth for the aristocracy and working poverty for the masses aren't just the present of the Republican Party, but its intended future. You can and maybe we all should listen to what they claim they're working for, but we all can and definitely should listen much more closely to their actions, which tell a wholly different and entirely more coherent story.